This podcast is offered to you by Zen Center North Shore on the web at www.zencenternorthshore.org. This program is made possible by donations from listeners like you. I don't know where everybody is, where you're located, but here in Beverly on the North Shore, it's very summery. It's the temperature, let's see. Oh, it's not that warm just yet, but it's already feeling really humid. Everything's very lush right now. Um, And so this morning, I just wanted to say just a few words about uh, what we're studying this summer, the Sangha Jewel. Um, and we're looking at this on Thursday nights uh, from the Sangha point of view, from actual Sangha members speaking from their place, from their perspective, sharing what their understanding, their experience of Sangha is. So it's kind of like doing Sangha, not just talking about it. And I thought, at least for today, and then we'll see how it goes in subsequent Sundays, to just spend a little bit of time um, sharing other points of view of Sangha, you know, maybe more traditional teachings of the Sangha Jewel. And so this morning, I thought I would share a little bit from Shuhaku Okamura, this wonderful book that he's written called Living by Vow, I really recommend it. It's one of those books I would recommend to actually have in your library. Uh, It's a wonderful reference book. It's a practical introduction to eight essential Zen chants and texts, including the verse of taking refuge, which we just offered in a version. And I think I think I skipped, (laughs) ironically, because I knew that I wanted to refer back to our having chanted this. I believe I skipped the Sangha Jewel. (laughs) So let me go back to that. What we chanted a few minutes ago was, I take refuge in Buddha before all beings, immersing body and mind deeply in the way, awakening true mind. And when we say that, it's so... Um, poetic in in an embodied way we plunge ourselves in immersing body and mind deeply in the way we do it by offering this full bow (laughs) so I see it it's not an intellectual concept it's a full bodied engagement this immersing deeply in the way and then so that's the first jewel the first treasure, the first uh, refuge is Buddha. And then the second one is I take refuge in Dharma before all beings. And again, we plunge in entering deeply the merciful ocean of the Buddha way, of the way of awakening. We have to do something. We in order to enter the Buddha way, we plunge in. 
So that's the second treasure, the second refuge, Dharma. And then the third refuge is what I wanted to just spend a few minutes on today. I take refuge in Sangha. And then we say, be for all beings. And then here we go again, plunging. <laughs> As we say, bringing harmony to everyone, free from hindrance. Doesn't that sound great? How is it that with the Sangha jewel, the, the jewel of community, of other human beings, you know, and, and we can say other beings, not necessarily human, but for now we can talk about human beings in the community of practitioners, of those who are studying the Buddha way, those who are attempting to live the Buddha way, to live the teachings of the Buddha, the teachings of awakening, to be in reality with each other, to choose relationship. This is taking refuge in Sangha. And so the question I have this morning is, and, and it flows from the Thursday night class, the Thursday night session, this, this last Thursday, what is this? How do we bring harmony by taking refuge in the, the, the Sangha treasure? How is it that we bring harmony to everyone? How is it that we can be free from hindrance? So that's just in my mind as I'm about to read to you from Shahaku some of his commentary on the Sangha treasure and this act of taking refuge. And, you know, one thing that came up on Thursday night was the classic tension in religious practice, religious inquiry. If that word religious gives you the heebie-jeebies, don't worry about it. You can say spiritual. <laughs> but it's a little bit more, you know, we up the ante when we say religious, I feel. And let me be really clear. When I say religion and religious, I'm not talking about dogma. I'm not talking about fundamentalism. That's maybe the spirit of this talk this morning. This classic conflict between the individual and community, I feel is vital for the enactment of true religious practice. This is not about negating the self. We need you. <laughs> we, the collective, the community needs you, 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 the individual in order to not fall into dogma and fundamentalism. And of course, maybe some of you can hear already that this has far-reaching implications in terms of um, structural ethics, institutional morality, that we need each other to avoid falling into such missteps as abuses of power, if it's just left to the vertical, 
to the Sangha leader, you know, or the priest. So this is a very important conversation we're having this summer. And that we're having always this Sangha jewel, the counterpoint to the vertical. (laughs) The horizontal, which balances the vertical. We need the vertical. If we didn't have the vertical, mm, can I say this? Yeah, I think if we didn't have the vertical, we wouldn't have some something tangible to be thrashing with <laughs> or interacting with, engaging with this morning. It would be kind of an amorphous mush. And I really don't think this sangha would have lasted for the nine years that we have so far. It's because of the specificity that we have something to return to. We have something to, to push against as we struggle to be free, each one of us individually. It's something clear to return to. So that's what I'm proposing is the vertical and everything has a shadow. The vertical needs the horizontal in an ongoing way to be challenged that ultimately each one of us has everything we need. It's just how do we access that thing that we need? Shohaku at a certain point in his, in his exploration of Sangha says, let me just jump right to the end right now. It's the very last paragraph of what I wanted to share. He says, I have been a monk priest for about 25 years. I don't think that I could have lived the Buddha's teaching and practiced by myself for so long. With the help of my teacher, my Dharma brothers and sisters, and the people who practice with me, I can practice. A Sangha of practitioners is most important. important. We really have to take refuge there. This vow brings Sangha vividly alive. And I feel that too. It's funny, there is a mutuality of that. Um, I was telling someone the other day that I remember there was a, a young woman who was an intern, a residential intern with us when we had our physical practice space on Lovett Street and we had a guest room. And so we explored having residential interns. And this young woman had a very difficult upbringing, childhood, very, very traumatic. And but there was something, she found a toehold in Zen practice in actually the rigor of it. And it was, even though she found comfort and stimulus there, deep support and encouragement, it was still hard to get up in the morning. (laughs) And I was remembering how I used to go, like the the Han would go off, it was time for morning sazen and no sign of her. (laughs) And it's very awkward to be, it was a small practice place to be sitting in the room adjacent to someone still sleeping. It just was not right. (laughs) And so I would go to her door and I really believe in this Dharma of, you know, encouragement I would knock on her door, I'd call out her name, and I would say, you know, this isn't her real name, I would say, Mary, 
wake up. The world needs you. <laughs> and she would get up and she, I still have this, this lavender, huge lavender fleece blanket <laughs> that she was using on her bed. And she would wrap herself in it and she would emerge like straight from bed. She wouldn't even go to the bathroom. <laughs> she would just come right from bed to her cushion. And she would sit there wrapped in this blanket. And she would continue to have it wrapped around her during Kinhin, during the walking meditation. She was like this lavender polar bear walking through the zendo. But I appreciated that. I, I deeply appreciated that effort. Um, and that mutuality of how helpful, not only helpful for her to come out into Sangha and to experience that, a community of people right here, but also how helpful it was for her to join in. It's just, there's so much energy there. There's so much um, sweetness of making this great effort and having it be witnessed, you know, having it be shared. So I find a lot of energy in that. I, you know, it is true. I used to think in the early days, I'm getting up for you to sit every day, you know, and it, and it is also true that I receive so much support from you. So I'm always very appreciative when people arrive to practice together. Thank you for that. So Shahaku and what he's saying about taking refuge in Sangha. So Sangha, it's a Sanskrit word. It means, so here's what Shahaku is saying about it. Sans, sangha is a Sanskrit word meaning an association or union of people. In India at the time of the Buddha, cities were forming. Some people were freed from the daily labor of agriculture as a result. So then you had classes arise of nobles, nobles, merchants, craftsmen, warriors, and people established unions or associations called sanghas. A sangha is a democratic community of members who share the same interests and status. And so he's, he's invoking what, I just, what we just offered together. I take refuge in Sangha, bringing harmony to everyone free from hindrance. This phrase, bringing harmony, is a translation of the Japanese word tori, which means unify. Buddhist Sangha members are unified by the Dharma. To have a community instead of a collection of in individuals to have harmony, we need something that unifies. To make soup, we chop the ingredients and put them in a pot, then add seasoning and cook it until the individual flavors blend to make one taste. Similarly, we need to cook ourselves and make these individuals into one community with one taste, the taste of Dharma. Harmony unifies a collection of individuals into a community in which we can take refuge. It's interesting. You know, I do remember I, I was the bread baker in the monastery, my first practice period there. 
And we used a Hobart. This is in my mind because I was in Cambridge the other night. And at some restaurant, I can't, I don't remember where it was, but in the window or in the kitchen, there was this huge Hobart. Has anybody ever seen this? A Hobart mixer? If you're making bread for 60 people, it's so kind to not be doing all that kneading by hand. I mean, some of you, some of it, well, the neat, the kneading actually I did by hand, but it was the mixing that was really, I was really grateful to have this big Hobart mixer. The, the bowl that you put in it was about, you know, this big. And so when I lifted it, it was so heavy. But I remember putting in the Hobart, the sponge, you know, that, that we have, the ongoing sponge, the um, flour, the water. We would always use, I would always go into the walk-in to look for the leftover cereal. Leftover hot cereal is really good. It's a good way to use up leftover hot cereal, like could be anything, semolina or, or cream of rice or um, steel cut oats was really good in bread, rolled oats. Anyway, you'd, and then you'd add that. And um, what else? Oh, put a little bit of honey, a little bit of honey, a little bit of canola oil or an olive oil mixed with a little bit of canola and then salt. Of course, it's very important to not forget the salt. Bread is dead without salt. And well, and then you mix it. So these discrete ingredients and I throw it into this big, big, heavy bowl, mixing bowl, and then, and then mix it and then take the spatula and clean off the mixing part and then lift that thing. And then I would lift that big, huge mixing bowl and carry it into the kitchen. And I remember the moment of emptying that onto the floured countertop that I had prepared for beginning to knead the dough. And that moment of the dough, all of a sudden it was dough, it was one thing for many, it was always kind of miraculous, that moment of going from multiplicity, you know, these multiple ingredients to this one massive dough. It's powerful. So it's a beautiful image to have, I think, for Sangha. I'm having, I'm looking over at my, um, I am going to show you this. This is a little bit awkward, but this beautiful calligraphy that Michiko and I did. So permit me, you're going to get the view behind this. This this is the backstage view. (laughs) You'll see my shoji screen go away. Yes. And then look at this beautiful calligraphy by Michiko and I. So right there, that means one sangha one community. But it's interesting when we're talking about one Sangha, as I was saying earlier, we still do, we still do need the multiple ingredients. You know, it's not just one monolith. I think for true harmony, you know, 
it's not like the multiplicity disappears. So at a certain point, I wonder about that metaphor. I'm not sure. But at any rate, Shahako continues, the next phrase is completely without hindrance. So this is interesting. With harmony and unity, there is no hindrance. Mm. When individuals think me first, endless problems and obstacles arise. But when we wake up to impermanence and egolessness and share the life of this moment, there is no hindrance. When we wake up to impermanence and egolessness and share the life of this moment, there is no hindrance. Of course, there are still difficulties to overcome, but with harmony, we can work on them. If we have discord, we cannot. This is the meaning of Sangha and of taking refuge in the triple treasure. So there is so much in here, and he does continue to go on to talk about the fact of impermanence, the fact that everything's changing in our life, in our lives, and in our life. And how do we meet that? This is what we've been talking about. This is the impetus for the Thursday night class series because we could say we're feeling deeply the fact of the kind of impermanence that has an emotional quality of uncertainty and therefore unease given the magnitude of what we've just experienced in the last year and a half almost and that we're not quite out of it, what lies ahead? How do we continue in this not knowing? How do we continue to live our lives without, you know, within this uncertainty? What is it that can support us and encourage us, you know, and even stimulate us? to just continue. So, so let me continue to read just a little bit because one of the words that comes up in the traditional teachings and that maybe some of us are feeling these days is fear. There's so many ways that our fear manifests. You know, for some of us who are in touch with our fear or who are, um, I don't know, inclined, our our dispositions are sort of, I'm trying to say we're not anger types because one of the ways that fear manifests is through anger. That's some of us who have more fiery personalities when we feel afraid we, have a, we can have a sense of taking back some illusion of control by having a massive temper tantrum or acting out. You know, and I think we're seeing this politically. I think we're seeing this socially on the streets with all kinds of aggression. Some of us just experience our fear as a kind of... Um, a kind of sadness, a kind of going inward, retreating. 
maybe a kind of depression, a kind of sinking mind. At any rate, uh, fear unacknowledged, not taken up um, with honesty and with energy and spirit, some courage. It's a problem. You know, and and I guess I, I would say without, you know, bypassing too much, I would like to say it's a missed opportunity to not actively own our fear. In some direct, immediate way, it's uh, an opportunity squandered of being in solidarity with everyone else who's also afraid. In the protest actions that sometimes we do, this can be expressed by just simply linking arms, that whole body mudra of standing in front of some aggression and linking arms. And I felt this so strongly for the first time standing next to Reverend Wendy, who's, oh, she's got to be over six feet tall, very strong, very strong UU minister, <laughs> linking arms with her and feeling something shift in my body, feeling, you know, a little bit less fear and a little bit more of a sense of connectedness, okay, of stability, of some kind of rootedness and being able to move to take the next step from that, which was simply not to run away, but to stay put. Shahaku says, the reason for taking refuge. Shobo Genzo is a collection of about 95 of Dogen Zenji's independent writings. One of the chapters is called Taking Refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha. Kie Bu Bo Sobo. Here he quotes a section from Ku Sharon, chapter 14, about why we take refuge in the three treasures. This text was originally written in India and translated into Chinese. The Indian text says, many people out of fear take refuge in the deities of mountains, forests, trees, gardens, shrines, and so on. We take refuge in gods because of fear. We need shelter, in this case, spiritual shelter, because we are weak and afraid. Human beings are not necessarily the strongest animals. We're not as big as elephants, as fast as cheetahs, as strong as gorillas. All phenomenal elements, such as too much or too little rain, cause suffering in our lives, full of fear and uncertainty. Primitive people needed something to worship, to rely on. Even in civilized society, it's dangerous to rely on things outside of ourselves. Everything outside of us, everything outside of us is uncertain, always changing and unreliable. We worship, pray to, or rely on this thing that we believe to be eternal and unchanging. This is one of the reasons we need religion. Buddhism, of course, is one of the religions. But the Buddha didn't teach us to take refuge in a deity beyond this phenomenal world. He taught us to find refuge within this world, within ourselves. This is the basic teaching of the Buddha and a difference between Buddhism 
and other religions. So I think next week I'll go into more of the connection between taking refuge in the triple treasure and the Four Noble Truths, the fact of suffering and the possibility of the end of suffering. Uh, but for now, I think this point that the Buddha didn't teach us to take refuge within our fear, within the fact of, an, of uncertainty, we have a choice right now of where we put where we put our faith, where we put our trust. And this is difficult because I think this is an important point as we're studying Sangha, you know, the community of human beings, it's not that we're putting faith in each other as individuals. And this is what's really interesting. The Buddha said in his, his last words, his last teachings before he died, all compounded phenomena are subject to decay, are subject to decay, are in a state of decay, are unworthy of confidence, are unreliable. That includes us, each one of us. When we take refuge in Sangha, we're not taking, like don't take refuge in me (laughs) individually. This is what's really interesting and what we're studying, this vertical and this horizontal. The most I'm feeling right now, what I'm feeling most deeply is it's this process, this ongoing process of entrustment with the collective, the collective process of human beings who show up as you have on this beautiful Sunday morning for whatever reason, your individual process of awakening on and off your cushion. I think returning to the cushion is kind of a check-in, a place to slow down the possible awakening that's happening off the cushion. Like awakening doesn't just happen on the cushion, but I think returning to the cushion is helpful to see the awakening that's happening. And when we come together, when we practice together, we get to see the collective process of awakening. We get to see this jewel of Sangha. Uh, You know, as Thich Nhat Hanh said, that maybe the future Buddha is not an individual, but the Sangha. We've had millennia now as human beings to kind of explore the different ways that we've interacted with each other. (laughs) Way back when, seeing another another human being might have been a threat. And then there were different ways as we evolved that we, we, we tried different things. We built fences. We organized into nations tribes. We valued family, you know, all these different ways of finding ways to interact with each other. And I'm wondering, I think today is the day, this is a major riff here, but today is the day someone's going, being launched into space. Who is it? Is it Sir Richard Branson or is it the other guy? (laughs) 
Anyway, someone's being launched into space today. If that sticks and people do start going out there and hanging out there, it's going to change our point of view of planet Earth. It's really interesting. But for us, I feel, as bodhisattvas, in exploring this Sangha Jewel, and this is why I think it's really important that it not be just limited to humans, but the collective of life. You know, is there a way that we can settle into with some courage and compassion, settle into protecting, upholding, enjoying the whole collective? You know, how can we keep encouraging ourselves and each other to find different ways to deal with our fear, to deal with the fact of uncertainty without acting it out on each other. So we're exploring this as kind of a microcosm, I think, with the Sangha of the Zen Center North Shore. And I'd like to think that this summer we we shore up (laughs) our little collective here and then we see how that might ripple out. I don't know. We shore up our individual um, aspiration for peace, freedom, you know, happiness. And then we join with others who are also doing, who are also interested in that, who are also valuing that, who are also seeing the possibility of that. And already it, it expands a little bit whenever we show up in Sangha. And then for this to not become simply another tribe, another fenced-in area. (laughs) We get up off our cushion, you know, in a minute. We log off and we go out into our day and go out into the world. And I think, I think there's a way, I believe that there's a way that we don't have to, we don't have to say, okay, now how do I do this? (laughs) I think there's a way that it just naturally flows. And maybe a Dharma talk is, about encouraging ourselves to trust that, that it's a natural process. Um, Just the last paragraph. The Indian text continues, taking refuge in such deities however, is not excellent and worthwhile. It's not possible to be released from various pains or sufferings by means of taking refuge in such kinds of deities. So we cannot find security through worship of things in nature or beyond nature. If people take refuge in the Buddha and take refuge in the Dharma and in the Sangha, they will, in keeping with the Four Noble Truths, constantly contemplate with wisdom. They know suffering. They know the cause of suffering. They know eternally going beyond suffering. And they know the Eightfold Path. That's the Four Noble Truths. Suffering, causes of suffering, the possibility of the cessation of suffering, and the fourth is how to do it, walking the the Eightfold Noble Path. Shakyamuni Buddha taught that people who take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha are able to see with the wisdom 
expressed in the Four Noble Truths. Wisdom is important in Buddhism, together with compassion and faith. In other religions, we can't understand, so we believe. But in Buddhism, we have faith because we have the wisdom to see. This is an important point. By taking refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha, we learn to find stability, peace, and liberation from fear by examining what's happening. We see that the cause of fear is inside us. So from this point of view, this taking refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha is what you do when you show up and do something like you just did, like this. Taking refuge in Buddha Dharma, you know, sitting down, taking refuge in Buddha Dharma, taking refuge in awakening. Dogen called it practice hyphen-realization. In faith that you're Buddha, you sit down and be Buddha. You take the posture of Zazen in a chair on a cushion lying down, and you do Buddha. And doing it with others is the Sangha part. So the whole thing is like taking refuge in the triple treasure. And then Shahaku was saying, through in doing this, we find stability, peace, and liberation from fear by examining what's happening. When we're sitting, we're examining what's happening. Not through here, not by analyzing it. This examination is just like a fool, like an idiot, just sitting down and opening up. What's here? Opening up to what's here. Bird song. Pain in my neck. <laughs> a little, little bit of a tightness here. And my long spine. I'm sitting differently these days because I'm, I, I feel like I'm overworking my hips, so I'm sitting in Seiza, so it feels a little bit different. I feel less grounded at the base, so I get to experience that. But there's a solidity and a stability right here. You know, and for those who practice yoga, who already have some confidence in the body, this is broadcasting um, a kind of a kind of faith. <laughs> it's like an embodied faith. It has nothing to do with believing anything. It has everything to do with doing something through the body, showing up, sitting down, being still, opening. And so when Chahak was talking about in Buddhism, we have faith because we have the wisdom to see. This wisdom is what we just invoked in the Heart Sutra, Prajna. Prajna, the wisdom of taking your place, sitting down, taking your place. And, you know, I'm feeling right now that, that I don't know how people sustain themselves sitting alone. Because it's so difficult to cognize that anything's happening here. 
Do you feel the deep support when you look on the screen and you see other people in the zazen posture and the mudra paying attention for some absurd reason? <laughs> Sitting here, what am I even talking about right now? What is this? And yet you're here. Buddha. Not out there, right here. Buddha. This sincere willingness to just simply be right here. So simple. So simple, so easily overlooked. So what I'm feeling on Thursday nights, I was telling someone the other day, I feel like there's energy being released with the Sangha speaking. You know, where are you in all this? Some of you have been practicing for a few years, for a few months, speaking. Where are you in all this? And I'm feeling the energy start to flow. Things start to move. This movement, because also <clears throat> when we're talking about this process this summer of studying Sangha, it's studying grief. It's a, it's a willingness to be in grief together, to find a way to be with grief Mm, the word productive came up <laughs> a little bit productive in the sense of using grief, of just using whatever's coming up, not squandering anything. If that's what's coming up, we meet it. And so, so I, I think it's helpful in grief work, in the work of trauma, in time to allow what's stuck to become dislodged, to begin to flow, for there to be movement. And this is what we talk about in political, social justice movements. Movements, they're called movements. Something arises and then how to enable the flow of that thing that arose. <clears throat> A revolution, it's revolving. A revolution of planets. This is life energy, cosmic energy. So that's also what's happening, and that's what I'm beginning to feel on Thursday nights, is the energy is starting to move. So I'm wondering if anybody, if you're here on Thursday nights, if there's anything that you want to share about that process of, uh, of Thursday nights, or if there's anything else at all that's coming up for you. The original question I asked at the beginning of this sharing was in the jewel of sangha what is this um i take refuge in sangha bringing harmony to everyone free from hindrance what is this harmony we're bringing we're taking refuge in sangha yes thinking back to uh, not that long ago in service and Seitetsu, what kind of trust and Joan, what kind of trust it takes to just keep going, you know, when the bells drop out, because I had to make a deliberate choice to, you know, I felt like something was off with Seitetsu's microphone. So I kind of felt that and went, okay. So I muted myself for those in, there are supposed to be bells in the interior. So kept ringing them on my own over here, but I was muted. So I was just, I'm thinking about that kind of thing that's happened in this particular sphere and the amount of 
trust, you know, Setetsu that it takes for you to just keep carrying that with your voice and to allow me to drop so that you step forward in that moment because you need to be heard as the chant leader, as the co-kill. And it just, it takes so much faith and trust. And I'm, I'm feeling that this morning and grateful that you have that focus and that energy. And um, yeah, to me, that's, that's what's enacting the Sangha this morning is just the, the cohesion there and the connection that, that interchange of energy that you can offer that. And that on my end, you know, that I'm still training, that I was muted, but I was still working with the bells to offer that as best I could. Um, that, that trust is really deep. And I'm just appreciating that right now. Thank you, Emily. Yeah, that is the, the beautiful opportunity with these forms, you know, of having chanting and bowing is there are opportunities to interact among Sangha members, the person who's ringing the bell, and the person who's Kokyo, to feel the truth of intimacy a little bit more, the impact on each other and the choices, just as you're saying, Mm-hmm. Thank you, Emily. I, I was thinking of, you know, that, uh, that bringing the harmony and the, uh, um, uh, and the, the harmony and I can't even think of the, the other word, but I think of this idea of a molecule, um, and how strong that form is and the sitting in the, za- the Zaza and, and I, you know, just was appreciating, um, it, you know, the hindrance. It's like, there's something about the strength that uh, I, I do appreciate. And I, I think maybe it's, it's somewhat related to, you know, that idea that, you know, the mystery of like something like a molecule, you know, things staying together and um, yeah, the container, even the way that the zoom format looks, it's like, it's almost, it's a, it's kind of a, it's it's a, it's a strong form, you know, but so anyway, um, but thank you, Emily, for uh, managing the sound because I, my, and my screen, you know, it's, there's so many things about, the uh, technology, you know, and things kind of disappear. I have to go find it somewhere. <laughs> but, it, 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 you know, there's just something nice about being able to just go into the container and um, kind of have that trust. Yeah. So thank you. Mm-hmm. So, Tetsu, it's so interesting. I thought you were going to say that even the the screen, the formation of our 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 rectangles was like a, molecule or an atom or something that like I had this image of like folding it around and we're this thing that has all these different aspects of our faces (laughs) that's so funny Mm. yeah thank you Setetsu for speaking anybody else anything on your mind or anything that you'd like to ask if I may uh, I'm a newcomer, and so what what occurs to me uh, is first appreciation uh, that that was a 
a very uh, beneficial Dharma talk, and it's given me a lot to wonder about. Um, and you said so many things. I mean, one of the things that occurs to me in terms of the, the vertical, and these are just sort of random thoughts, right, is that, as I understand it, the Buddha, the Buddha is reputed to have said, um, you know, who's the teacher? Who should we turn to uh, upon your death? And he said the teachings, and the Sangha was a sort of an exclusive community who didn't accept everyone, right? Uh, and it came together in part to preserve the teachings and to, to transmit them. So there's a kind of vertical um, connection there. Uh, but it depended for, you know, and through alms rounds and householders and others, right, in the broader community. So it wasn't, it wasn't completely isolated, right? It, it just um, kind of uh, coalesced, uh, let's say, uh, to a certain purpose. Um, so there was a sort of horizontal that, that you brought up. I mean, these are just my associations. I'm, I'm not putting words in your mouth. Um, but then I remember, you know, the, the platform sutra, the first part of that is that when transmission took place, that person had to flee because other members of the Sangha were sort of disappointed, let's say. And so, you know, this brings uh, my, my wondering to the current moment, which others have echoed, right, is, is a continuing, uh, continuous creation, right, where there is an expansion to include other, other beings. Uh, and there's some question about whether plants are sentient or not and, and uh, those kinds of things. Uh, so, but it, it, it really speaks to um, an inheritance, I guess, of a tradition and, and a transmission, which implies not just, um, you know, handing off a fossil that never, that's kind of static and never changes, but rather, you know, uh, leavening it, let's say, in, in some way. So it's really been, been very rich and very beneficial. And as I say, has given me a lot to, to wonder about. So I thank you very much. Well, thank you, Andres. And so you've given a lot just there to chew on. And, and since you invoked the Platform Sutra, we have not talked about the Platform Sutra at all, I think. Maybe we, oh, we've touched on it here and there, different um, aspects of the Platform Sutra. But this is a wonderful text from the Zen tradition. Even though it's called a sutra, it's not from the Buddha's time. It's the... Um, the, the story of the fifth ancestor uh, transmitting to the sixth ancestor. And it's, it's what I love. There are two things I love about this story. One is, is that you like the, the social kind of justice aspects of that sutra are that you can be an illiterate woodcarver and you can become enlightened. You can become a Dharma heir. So this is a universal opportunity you don't need money you don't need noble standing this is available for everybody buddha the the, the uh, um, awakening enlightenment that's the first thing the second thing is that um <laughs> which i also deeply appreciate is this thing about you know i've said this often andres so for others who've heard this forgive me but it, it this was one of my awakenings in the monastery I realized it's when the, the bubble burst, you know, the, my, all my illusions of what awakening is was punctured. And the sooner that happens, the better. There was a moment in this pristine mountain valley where I was training um, at the Zen monastery in California, where I realized that no matter where you go in the human realm, if it's the world or the monastery, you're going to have two things trash and politics <laughs> and i think the story of the platform sutra 
It's a story of political intrigue. It's the politics of the monastery. Or as Andres pointed out, he was he was talking about how because the sixth ancestor was this this new guy who had just shown up and he was illiterate and he was poor and he was a nobody. And the head student got surpassed by him. He beat him in a poetry contest. And so when the fifth ancestor saw what was going down, this and this is the origin of the Dharma transmission ceremonies happening at midnight in private a secret room it's a secret transmission because of this <laughs> he had to give him he had to make him his successor at midnight and then told him he had to skip town and he had to he fled he fled town but the beautiful thing about that is he was pursued by the head student who was apparently a general <laughs> So that must have been pretty scary. This mili military guy who was really angry because he'd been surpassed by this nobody. And the, the head student caught up to him and they had this whole encounter and things eventually settled down. But then you had another break in the, this is the origin also of the Northern school and the Southern school. Anyway, and I think it's really important to name that because that's the realm we're in. We're in the realm of, politics to some degree so um yes andres thank you for opening that up and and yeah i appreciate that too you're talking about shakyamuni's words just before he died it always makes me cry it always catches in my throat when i say that line at least how we translate it in this school that shakyamuni says you know when i'm gone don't think the teachings are dying with me. From this moment on, this bright world and everything in it is your teacher. It still happens every single time. I don't, what is that? I think there is something about what is sacred, that there is no ground to spit on. Like in, in it, when you're training in monastic forms and stuff like that, it's like one of the worst things to do is to spit. Like you should never spit. <laughs> There's no, don't spit. There's no place to spit. <laughs> Just don't do it. Because every spot on planet earth is sacred. Every spot is sacred. Every being, every speck is sacred, is worthy of respect. And so, yeah, that's deeply moving. And even, you know, and, it, and it's even true that, that it didn't start with Shakyamuni Buddha. It's not like he started something and then it got set in motion. I mean, his, the words that he spoke, we say that's the turning of the wheel. But it's important also to know that at least according to our understanding, he didn't make it up. He simply connected with a deep process that's already happening. He just made contact with it and then started speaking about it. And it's our job just to continue that. Yeah. This bright world and everyone and everything in it is our teacher. And so, but we might not always notice that. We might not always appreciate that. So in some ways we have the Sangha to return to, to go, oh yeah, that's right. Let me go back out there and be with all my teachers. Okay. Any last thought before we take refuge?
in the language, one of the languages of the Buddhist time in Pali. Okay, thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode. This podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. For more information or to donate, please go to www.zencenternorthshore.org. Thank you.